This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great and the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy. Each week through this show, I have the opportunity to interview a variety of experts who maybe helped me or enhanced the topic uh, of each week's column. This week, my column is, is entitled, Brexit's Energy Lesson for California, in which I was able to tie together two current stories. One, California's energy crisis and the blackouts they're experiencing in the summer heat and the announcement of the closure of the nuclear power plant, which we'll be discussing in the last segment of today's show. And then Brexit, Britain's exit from the European Union and the impact of excessive regulations on that vote. For our first guest today, we're, I'm delighted to have back with us once again on America's Voice for Energy, my good friend John Fund, who is a contributor in Fox News and a columnist for National Review. And John was in England at the time, in London, covering the Brexit vote. So, John, thanks for joining us today and giving us a firsthand report on what, what the tone was over there in Britain. A pleasure. Always happy to help out and especially to give good news to your listeners. Well, thanks so much. And, and uh, do you view that the Brexit vote is good news? If you believe in freedom, if you believe in independence, if you believe in self-government, if you believe in uh, the ability of people to make their own decisions, uh, it was a ten strike for all of those things that Britain voted for leaving the European Union. Well, good. I mean, I was I was in favor of it myself, but there was so much talk about catastrophe that was going to happen if it went that direction that, uh, I, I, you know, I wondered what you thought. Well, there certainly has been turmoil in the markets, the currency markets, the energy markets, the um, stock markets, and this to be expected for something that was so unexpected and a big surprise to the political elites and the establishment. So obviously nothing comes without some short-term cost. But in the long term, Britons are going to be more prosperous, more free, more able to chart their own destiny, and more able to establish trading links and economic relationships with the 93% of the world that does not belong to the European Union. You know, you bring up uh, some interesting points in there, and, and I, I want to get to the parallels to what's going on in America. But before we get to that, you know, you bring, you bring up their trading uh, situation in the rest of the world. What was the tone there? Were people um, expecting this? Because the polls showed uh, a different result. Well, when I arrived in Britain, it really was like stepping onto another planet because um, the British are cons generally considered to be extremely civil, extremely uh, reserved, and that wasn't the case in this. We had a mini-civil war being conducted without weapons. Uh, the, the dividing camps in the Civil War were very, very furious with each other, uh, competing counterclaims, and... The polls showed, of course, a 50-50 split in the country. Remain was ahead in most of the polls, but within the margin of error. And I think in the end, 
There was a question of turnout. People who wanted to leave the European Union were far more passionate and far more interested in getting to the polls than the people who wanted to have the status quo and stay in the European Union. Now, I have to ask again because it's my interest level, um, what what role do you see, if any, do, did climate change play into this debate? I've read a lot of reports that the, the – the so-called skeptics or deniers were, were a lot behind the Leave movement. Well, I think a lot of people, of course, emphasized other issues. For example, immigration, sovereignty, uh, the money that Britain ships to the European Union. But among a part of the electorate, especially the environmental community and especially the free market movement, there was clear a clear stake in the in the outcome. Uh, the environmentalists were very concerned that uh, Britain's commitment to climate change, uh, Britain's commitment to falling in line with uh, regulatory matters, with new perhaps future cap-and-trade emission schemes, was, was going to be determined by this vote, uh, that if Britain were by itself were making its own decisions, it, wouldn't have, it would have less commitment to climate change legislation. And the free market people who supported Leave agreed with them. They said, look, the scientific evidence is increasingly tenuous. Uh, more and more people uh, are saying, look, we, we don't even have to look at the scientific evidence. It's so uh, clear that climate change is happening. And they viewed that as a very dangerous trend where even scientific evidence is now not considered to be part of the uh, equation if it descends from the orthodoxy. So it really was a battle as to whether or not Britain was going to have more control over its decisions on climate change in the future or whether or not it was going to have to fall in line with Brussels. And Brussels, of course, was all in for doing almost anything necessary to fight climate change, so long, of course, as it didn't affect the bureaucrats in Brussels. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that you support the uh, free market movement both abroad and here at home, but it sounds from what you're saying like you think that um, the whole climate change debate did at least play a role, if not a substantial role, in the decision. For some voters, it was one of the more important issues, and for a few voters, it was the issue. And obviously, the result was factored in and based on many other issues, but of course, climate change was part of it, and it was brought up in several of the debates that I saw. I'm glad to hear that. What was the response there on the ground once the vote came out in favor of Brexit? Well, I was at two parties, um, and the, the first party I went to included some Remain supporters, and they uh, were confident they were going to win, and the people who were backing leave were actually confident they were going to lose. The second party I went to was the official party of the leave campaign, and Nigel Farage, who was the leading instigator and spokesman for getting Britain out of the European Union uh, before Boris Johnson uh, jumped on board, he actually gave a speech in which he said, I've seen private polling conducted by financial institutions, and unfortunately it looks like we're going to lose. The battle may be lost, but the war will go on. And then three hours later, as the results started to come in, he had to reverse himself and say, uh, I retract all of that. And then a couple hours after that, he gave a triumphal um, victory speech. Wow, that must have been exciting to be there and participate in that moment, especially with him in the room. 
Well, the way the British results come in, there were about 400 polling centers around the country. So the votes cast in each individual polling place were shipped to a regional center. There were 400 of them. And then they were counted. Since there was a paper ballot, there was only one issue to count, whether or not you were leaving or staying in the European Union. It was fairly quick. And then each polling location, as they as they had finished their vote, would uh, have a representative of the election commission step up onto the stage and would announce the vote over live on television. So you, it was a real sense of excitement. It was sort of like the Academy Awards. And the first result that came in was Gibraltar, which is a small British dependency off of the coast of Spain. It very much wanted to stay in the European Union because it felt it had a more secure future, given that Spain claims Gibraltar um, as its own. And they came in 96% for Remain. So, of course, the Remain people were very happy. Yeah, and then yeah. the first... The first result was from Sunderland. Sunderland is a very depressed uh, Labour Party-oriented constituency. Uh, used to do shipbuilding, and that's basically gone away in part because of environmental regulations. And mm-hmm. lo and be- lo and behold, Sunderland had been had been uh, calculated as coming in about fifty-fifty between Leave and Remain. The actual result was sixty-one percent for Leave, thirty-nine percent for Remain, and the cheers that came up were deafening because everyone believed if this is part of a trend, it means we're going to sweep the election. Wow. We've just got a few minutes left, so it's exciting to hear, but I do have to ask one more question on Britain. Uh, You know that my column, I I address the tea kettles and toaster uh, story, which when I heard that, when I heard that, I was like, for me, wow, this is so fun, I can't not address that. Um, Did you hear anything about tea kettles and toasters specifically while you were there, or was it more overall about the regulatory burden? It was more about the overall regulatory burden, but the things that people were most upset with concerned things that they used in everyday life. One of the new regulations that had just come in was banning uh, high-energy use vacuum cleaners, which, of course, can also suck up very quickly and very deeply carpet, dirt, and things like that. Uh, Apparently, the British um, vacuum cleaner industry was very upset, um, they felt, look, if you want to tax energy, fine, but don't take away the right of people to go buy a vacuum cleaner they feel can do the job for their home or their business. Uh, all of those regulations, uh, once Britain leaves the EU, are going to be suspended or thrown away with regard to Britain, and Britain will come up with its own regulations or come up with none of them. Yeah, let the free market decide. What a, what a crazy idea. Oh, and, of course, light bulbs are very important. Uh, Britain it was even further along than the United States in banning old incandescent light bulbs, and people had been hoarding them or trying to buy them from you know black market sources. So th- there, there were lots of little things that the European Union had done over the years that nettled or irritated Britain, and tea kettles and toasters were just part of that. Yeah. Well, that's a fascinating story. We've got about two minutes left, John. Thanks for your insights. What do you see, having been there on the ground in Britain and experiencing this this free market uh, kind of fervor, how do you see that playing out in the American elections? A lot of people are drawing a parallel. Do you see one? Yes, uh, there's a couple. One is it's clear that bureaucrats all over the world are the same. Uh, they will act like burglars walking through a neighborhood, uh, trying every door to see if one is unlocked. 
and using that to exploit and expand their power, just like a burglar uses an unlocked Great door analogy. to rob a house. I love it. And and if if there's not constant vigilance on the part of ordinary citizens, uh, they will expand their power to the detriment of the freedom of all of us. The second thing is, you can you can take back power. Uh, you know, the entire political establishment, everyone from the banks to the Goldman Sachs to the academics to three-quarters of parliament to um, three-quarters of um, the British um, members of the ruling class, all of them said, no, no, you can't, you don't know what you're doing. Don't do this. And the people rose up and decided to think for themselves and that sovereignty was important to them and they didn't believe Project Fear, which were only scaremongering tactics of the opposition, and they boldly cast their own vote. I'm old enough to have seen Proposition 13 in California in 1978, um, which had much the same political dynamic, and it was exciting to see then, it was exciting to see it now, to watch people take back their country, and I think there are parallels that will be obvious to your audience in that. Those are some of the same issues that are being discussed here in the United States. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting election cycle, and it'll be fascinating to watch. We're out of time, John Fund. Thanks for joining us today with this firsthand report on what's happened over there in Britain with the Brexit exit, or Britain exit, and uh, it'll be interesting to watch what happens here. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. We'll be back in just a moment with the next segment of America's Voice for Energy. Thanks for listening. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you're able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will likely continue to rise, while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is, Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We believe in taking care of the whole patient, because healing is more than writing a prescription. We are committed to working with you, and we specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage, and we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. In this segment, we're going to be talking with Dr. Benny Pizer, who is the director of the Global Warming Policy Forum. And uh, he's there in London watching everything firsthand. And welcome, Benny. We're glad to have you back today on America's Voice for Energy. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, you all uh, have been watching this 
the Brexit vote, and of course you must be over the moon with how it came out. Well, I personally uh, kept out of all the campaigning. Uh, we keep uh, out of the campaign because our members and our trustees have kind of uh, a divided view on it, but the implications obviously are huge and significant and will have European and, in fact, global repercussions. Yes, they certainly will have definitely repercussions, and I certainly uh, respect your staying out of the campaigning element. And my, my commenting about you being over the moon on it was really specifically having to do with the uh, impact or the potential impact on global warming policies in Britain and specifically the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, what do you see is going to happen with that? Well, there are huge implications in that um, Britain has been in the past lifting a heavy weight in the European Union, on, both on energy climate targets and obligations. And without Britain within the European Union, it will become even more burdensome and even more costly and even more troublesome for EU member states to adhere to the targets and the policies um, they've agreed to. So it is uh, a new world. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Europe were to drag its feet and not ratify the Paris, Paris Agreement anytime soon. The Europe, as it was, uh, has been deeply divided over this issue, mainly between Eastern Europe uh, states and Western Europe states. But now that Britain has decided to leave the European Union, everything is really up in the air. Well, that's pretty dramatic. I had not heard that it was possible that the, the EU might drag their feet on signing the agreement. I read the article in the Australian that talked about that the whole agreement will now have to be rewritten without, uh, you know, with, with Britain as a separate entity rather than as part of the that's EU. Right. Can you explain that further? Yes, because the Paris Agreement uh, was not uh, signed by individual member states of European member states, but was agreed by EU officials, and the EU actually committed to a 2030 target of cutting CO2 emissions by 40% at EU level. But without the UK contribution to this target, everything will become so much more difficult for the other uh, members of the EU um, that I cannot see any consensus within the EU of signing off Paris anytime soon. Would that be, I'm just wanting you to help me to understand, would that be because uh, the UK was going, was perhaps going to cut their emissions more than, let's say, Poland Indeed. and so have it as a group, the U.K. Exactly. needed to be there with those dialed-back emissions to compensate for those countries that would not be dialing back. 
Exactly. That's the point. Imagine okay. that the EU agreed at Paris, uh, at the Paris conference, to cut their emissions at the EU level by 40% by 2030. Britain had come almost, more or less, uh, they haven't yet decided, but is on the verge of committing 57% uh, reduction by 2030. So that would release the burden for many, many EU member states to do less. So once Britain is out, uh, the other member states will have to carry much more, and they will be extremely reluctant to do that. Um, so what I'm suggesting is there is, in my view, no chance for the EU to ratify the Paris Agreement, not uh, in the next few months, but perhaps not for the next two or three years. Wow. Was there a lot of talk about this? Was the whole climate change narrative and the environmental regulations, was that narrative uh, widely addressed in the uh, Brexit or Remain campaign? No, not at all. And no one uh, saw this coming because every expert, every pollster, every institution, every party assumed that the referendum would be won by the Remain campaign. Uh -huh. uh, the, the fact that uh, the Leave campaign won this referendum came as a huge shock to most people including the bureaucracy, no one anticipated, no one in Paris even thought about it. Um, no one thought about the implications. And in, on, on top of all of this uh, is the fact that India, one of the biggest uh, emitters in the world, has also decided to delay ratification indefinitely. Only in the last few days they've uh, said they, there's no chance for India to ratify Paris anytime soon, which means that um, it will be interesting to see whether Paris will be ratified um, before the Obama administration leaves the White House, which they had hoped would be the case. Paris is up in the air and no one knows what's going to happen. Yeah, so I would guess that uh, our news here in the States has uh, not been nonstop on Brexit, and they keep talking about the aftershocks. So I would assume, then, that one of the aftershocks would be to the environmental groups and the Paris Treaty or Paris Agreement folks that, that as you've said, nobody was expecting this, and so they, hadn't even, they didn't even have a plan B. No, there is no plan B. This is a truly British revolution which will have massive implications. No one knows uh, where this is going to end, but uh, the whole world of uh, political and geopolitical certainty has been turned upside down and everything is up in the air. Every policy, every agreement, every thing that was certain for the last 20, 30 years uh, has been overthrown. And uh, 
no one knows uh, how this will change, not just climate and energy policy. Um, I'm not that concerned because, obviously, the good news in terms of energy security and energy policy is that there's so much energy available that no one has to be really concerned about lack of energy or uh, any energy security issues. But in terms of policy change, the referendum result is revolutionary in every aspect. All right, we just have a few minutes left, and I have a couple other questions I want to ask you. One I just want to know, you've mentioned um, the, the uh, British contribution, but that was specifically on the climate change agreement, and you were talking about emissions. Do you have any idea how much money the U.K. will be saving by not paying for the EU government? Uh, about £10 billion pounds per year. That's, okay. the EU, that's the UK contribution, the annual contribution to the EU. That's about 10 billion euros. Um, obviously, this will only happen once the UK actually uh, leaves the EU. This is a long process. No one knows how long this is going to take. But once the, EU, once the UK, once Britain leaves the EU, the saving is about 10 billion uh, pounds per year. Pounds. Okay. Pounds. Interesting. Which is one other 50, thing. Um, well, depending on the current yeah. change rate. Yeah. Uh, assuming the pound recovers, you know, today we're seeing a lot of market recovery, and uh, assuming yeah, the course. pound recovers, <laughs> I, well, yeah. I'm personally assuming it will recover, and I trust you are as well. Yes. Well, I think uh, Britain is in a very good economic situation. It's the most flexible and uh, the strongest economy really um, in terms of economic growth. It, the fundamentals are right and it's an international country. It's looking now to the whole world, no longer obsessed just with Europe. Europe is a declining continent with an aging population looking inwards. Britain is an outward-looking country, I have no doubt that Britain has a bright future. One, one other quick thing um, before we close. You mentioned about the, the uh, emissions throughout the European continent, uh, the CO2 emissions, and I know you follow closely what's going on in Germany, because Germany, is yeah. are they still seeing increasing CO2 emissions as they rely more on coal? Yes, indeed. Uh, emissions have gone up and are likely to go up um, this year uh, because coal is basically replacing nuclear and um, they are struggling with their whole transition. It's The costs are astronomical and the emissions are not going down, they're going up. So... Uh, that is another aspect that most people see that where the rhetoric, where the wishful thinking is driving policy rather than pragmatism, rather than realism, uh, Germany is a classical case where uh, even 25 billion euros per year they're throwing at the green transition and is unable to bring down CO2 emissions. 
And in the U.K., you all have been dialing back on some of your green energy policies. Is that correct? That's correct, because it's extremely expensive and extremely unpopular. And even uh, a green conservative government, uh, which we have, uh, realized that it is extremely unpopular and is undermining economic competitiveness. It makes uh, energy prices not only expensive for households but also for industry. So there is still more scope for reform. Yeah. Just in seconds left, I mentioned in my column the issue about the tea kettles and the toasters. Was this something that was talked about in this campaign? No, but uh, I'm sure some people are fed up with the kind of over-regulation coming out of Brussels, uh, trying to regulate uh, the size of bananas and uh, the energy efficiency of toasters, yes. No, it's not a big issue. It's just an annoyance. <laughs> so, well, I, it, it gave me a good laugh when I read it, and I think so many of my readers <laughs> enjoyed it as well. We've been talking with Dr. Benny Pizer, the director of the Global Warming Policy Forum. Thanks for joining us today. It's a, it's a treat to hear from you firsthand, and I uh, appreciate your insights so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to America's Webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and in this segment, we're going to be talking with someone new to America's Voice for Energy. I first became aware of our guest uh, for this segment on Monday morning as I was putting my column together, getting it out to the outlets that publish it, and I had Fox Business on in the background, as I usually do. I listen for words like energy, like fracking, like, you know, anything that pertains to my work, and then I stop what I'm doing and tune in and pay attention. Well, as I was listening, I heard the words tea kettle and toasters. Now, those are not things you normally hear on Fox Business Network, but because it was an important connection to my column this week, I tuned in, and I had missed the guest's uh, 
last name, got the first name, and I remembered that it had, had said in the introduction, the King's College. So I wrote down Mark, and I wrote down the King's College, and I did a search on the Internet, and I found Mark W. Smith, who's an accomplished trial lawyer, constitutional attorney in New York City, and the author of the official handbook of the vast right-wing conspiracy with a subtitle of The Arguments You Need to Defeat the Loony Left. I was thrilled to discover Mark, sent him an email, he called me back, and wow, here we are. So, Mark, thanks for joining me today on America's Voice for Energy. Well, Maria, thank you for having me on, and thank you for all the work that you do to advance the cause of truth. Well, like I said, I, I was pleased to, to discover you because of your uh, teapots or tea kettle and toaster comment. How did you become aware in the Brexit discussion uh, of teapots or tea kettles and uh, toasters? Well, it's very interesting, actually, because what what has been missing in this Brexit discussion is the absurd regulations that the EU always wants to come out with. And to me, the most interesting one, although the, the regulation of appliances, which is vacuum cleaners, toasters, tea kettles, and all sorts of other kitchen appliances, the more, an even equally absurd one, Marita, was that this proposal that they kicked around last week, talking about, ready for this, paying Social Security taxes on robots. I don't know if you saw that one. So here we are. No, I missed that one. Yes. Yeah. So here we are where people are like, oh, my God, what's going to happen to the British now that they're no longer ruled by unelected bureaucrats in Brussels who literally are these petty tyrants willing to address all sorts of silly things that are, that are actually are not silly at all because ordinary people use, obviously, toasters and tea kettles and, and coffee makers and vacuum cleaners to live their ordinary lives. And as you astutely pointed out in your piece uh, that you sent to me, which I really appreciate, you know, it's absurd. Energy, as you know, is how we live. We cannot heat our homes. We cannot stay alive without energy and there's not just a war on energy being taken you know that the eu is advancing it's many of these western governments including the hillary clintons of the world that want to engage in a war on energy but what they oh, really certainly. what they really are talking about as you know is a war on energy is really a war on humans and people because we cannot live work do anything without energy, and this war on it is absurd, and it is definitely a movement embraced by the elites, which yeah, is why I was so thrilled amazing. in the context of Brexit, in the Brexit, this sort of thumbing of the nose toward the elites, which the Brexit decision to leave, I think, really was. And I, I agree totally, and I'm very surprised um, that this seems to be missed in most of the discussions. And so, like I said, that's why I was so pleased when I heard you mention the toasters and tea kettles, that, uh, because it, it, it is uh, a big part of that Brexit vote, based on my research, is that people are revolting against these absurd regulations. Right. And they're this nanny state, and it goes into, look, unfortunately, here in the United States, we have equally absurd regulations. Uh, like, for example... No, no, many, say it isn't true. 
<laughs> exactly right. And think about it. You know, the one that I've written about in the past is the rules associated with, you know, the amount of water you can have in your toilet bowl. So we literally have federal government regulations governing the, you know, the, the flush the, the per water flush associated with one's toilet in a home. Now, why is the federal government getting involved with that? And, of course, the European Union, what happens in Europe comes here. And that's what the Barack Obamas and Hillary Clintons and Elizabeth Warrens of the world want. They want these sort of loony things to start in Europe, develop a toehold, and then they bring it over here in the United States. Keep in mind, uh, Marita, and this since we've had decisions this week on the US, you know, by the U.S. Supreme Court, it bears mentioning that U.S. Supreme Court justices have indicated in the past that it is appropriate for American judges, who are government employees, of course, to look across the ocean to Europe for guidance in making decisions about how we run our government and our society. So, again, that precedent of let us look to Europe to give us guidance is not new. So anything we can do to roll back the war on energy and the war on capitalism, the war on the free market over in Europe ultimately helps us here in the United States. Interesting perspective because we certainly see uh, a lot of the climate change uh, regulation is started in Europe um, and has, you know, crossed crossed over to us here. And, and you know, this Brexit decision, well, I only threw in my column really just one line about this. But it's going to re- rewrite. It's, they've got to rewrite the entire Paris Climate Agreement. And it's widely expected that um, the U.K. will change a lot of their energy policies, which have been so detrimental, uh, especially to the poor and the elderly uh, in England. Exactly right. Again, what, you know, if I can draw an analogy here, I think, you know, looking at the Donald Trump campaign, if we can use that to illustrate a point, is he's very much focused in his rhetoric on what's best for ordinary Americans. Let us do what's best for ordinary Americans. Let's have an immigration policy that puts Americans first and doesn't necessarily put the immigrants first. Okay, and I think that here... In, the, in this Brexit debate, I think the notion, and, and in the energy debate, we really should be asking ourselves, how do we put ordinary people first? Um, not the elites that want this and that, but how do we help ordinary people who drive to work, who you know need to fire up the ovens to cook their breakfast in the morning and their dinners? How do we help them? What can we do to help them? And what's going on that you know you've written about and talked about quite a bit, Marita, is that this sort of war on energy really puts ordinary people. At the back of the line, they have other interests that get placed ahead of ordinary Americans, and I think that people are fed up, and rightly so. And I do hope there's change because, um, you know what, uh, I like the environment very much, of course, but we have to realize that we, we, you know, there are costs associated with some of these decisions that are being made, and those costs are being borne by the, those that can least afford it. Yeah, I love the way you put that, that, that we need to look at energy policy and what's best for the ordinary person, and uh, I, I, might, I might steal that. Oh, go right ahead. So, Mark, you know, what, what, do, you, what do you see as you, you're looking at this? What do you see coming next? Well, 
I think there's a couple things that w- we should look to in the Brexit. It, it, we were talking about the Brexit issue. The next thing that will happen is a selection of the prime minister, because David Cameron says that he's not going to transition the uh, U.K. out of the EU. He's going to wait for his successor to do that, and we don't know who that's going to be. It could be Boris Johnson. It could be somebody else. So the next step here is going to be the election of the prime minister by the Conservative Party. Once, once that occurs, then the decision will be made, when does the United Kingdom exercise what's called Article 50? Article 50 of the European Con- Union basically con- contract, if you want to call it that. Article 50 is how one uh, discloses and states to the people, we're giving you notice that within the next two years we're leaving the EU. And once you exercise Article 50 as a country, you then have two years to negotiate your exit. And right now that Article 50 has not been exercised or notified, but when the new prime minister comes into the U.K., they will at some point thereafter disclose that they're going to exercise Article 50. That triggers a two-year period to negotiate all the details of the divorce, really, and that's what we should be looking for. So the next step is look for the election of the prime minister over there, then look to the election and notification that they're exercising Article 50 of the European Convention. Those are the true critical events we should be looking at in terms of the law. As to the markets and the economy, you know, I think the markets are – you know, keep in mind that stock markets are really full of traders, people buying and selling. Um, many of these things are computers now. Uh, algorithms are triggered. It's not necessarily you and I buying stock every day, uh, right. Marita, right? It's now computers that, you know, if the computer sees gold goes up a dollar, it makes five decisions to buy or sell. And these algorithms just cause all this ripple effect. So when we see these big, relatively big swings in the market, a lot of this is, I think, is driven by computers making decisions about, you know, signals and triggers. And that's what's really happening here. It doesn't speak necessarily to the fundamentals of an economy or whether or not people will be getting paychecks. Uh, and that often gets lost in the rhetoric of politicians, of course. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Personally, I think it won't be as bad as people are projecting, but that's outside of the scope of my expertise. It's yes. just my, my personal opinion. So we've just sure. got about two minutes left, Mark. We've been talking about regulations and how those regulations really impacted the uh, Brexit vote, and that's where the toasters and the tea kettle story comes in. But we've got so many crazy regulations uh, in the United States. What do you think, uh, you know, do you think that the American public is, is getting fed up with that? And, again, we're down to, to just about a minute and a half left. I think that the American public is getting fed up among the older generations. I think the millennial generations is still figuring this out because a lot of the younger voters, you know, they haven't lived enough life, they haven't paid enough taxes, they haven't seen the effect of regulations because by virtue of the fact of being young, they've been on the receiving end of a lot of government largesse, whether it be student loans or student grants or whatnot. But the older people who have lived lives and had families and bought homes and bought cars and made decisions in the economic space more than the youngers, I think they realize the consequences of uh, these sort of regulations and the cost of them. I think if they're very well-to-do, the regulations, relatively speaking, don't cost them very much. But if you're trying to make ends meet every other week or every month, 
paycheck to paycheck, I think these little regulations add up to quite a bit, and those are the people that feel left behind. And they're being left behind not because of the economy, but because of government regulations and the cost and expenses associated with complying with them. And that, I think, is the story that often gets lost in the media marita. Yeah, well, hopefully uh, our conversation today, your presence on Fox Business and uh, my column out there will help draw people's attention to that. So we've been talking with Mark W. Smith, who's a constitutional attorney in New York City, the author of the official handbook of the vast right-wing conspiracy with the subtitle, The Arguments You Need to Defeat the Loony Left. Mark, I'm so pleased that you were able to join us. Great to meet you uh, via telephone, and I hope that we'll have future occasions to interact because we've got so many things in common. I'm sure we will. I'm looking forward to it, Marita. Thank you for your help again. Looking forward to working with you in the future. Thank you so much. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law case, the Obama eligibility cases, the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, Visit LibertyOnCall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. It's hard to believe we're already at our closing segment. What a great show with fascinating guests. And our final segment, we'll keep that trend going. We're talking with Steve Hayward, who is a professor of public policy at Pepperdine University. And Steve, like me, writes frequently on energy issues. And I cited his work in my column this week, specifically talking about the California energy situation. And Steve, if I may, I'd like to start our segment by reading to you a comment from my column that is posted all over the internet, but this particular comment came off of the posting at oilpro.com, which is relevant because the oil pro readers in general, as the website might indicate, are oil professionals. They're people who are in the oil and gas industry. And this is a comment that I received uh, from someone who read my column and responded with this comment, and I'd like you uh, to listen to it and give us your reaction, if you would, please. The comment says, first, 
I live in California, and there have not been blackouts, nor any predictions of blackouts that I have been notified of by my provider, PG&E. Nuclear is a very small percentage of power purchased by utilities at 9% of the mix in 2014. It was almost twice that for solar purchases, for solar purchases at 4%. However, that 4% number apparently does not include the home rooftop solar. I have rooftop solar and only purchase electricity a small portion of the year. Most of the time I produce what I need and some months I sell back to PG&E. Home rooftop solar gets categorized as unspecified sources and that number runs at 14% of the mix. So perhaps it's as simple as more rooftop systems to decrease the grid load and make up the difference. What would you respond to that? And thanks for joining me today on America's Voice for Energy. Well, first, it's good to be with you. I don't even know where to start to respond to something that's that um, uh, full of falsehoods, right? Um. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't either, really, which is why I'm asking you. I read it, and I, my, I, you know, my, I had an easy response about the notification of blackouts and, and but I thought, well, you know, maybe they haven't notified you, but the independent system grid oper- or system operator says this. But go ahead. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, actually, I think it's in Southern California more than not the PG&E area. I think it's Southern California Edison that has been saying there may be blackouts because of natural gas shortages to all the gas plants that run right. at full tilt in the summertime. So, okay, well, never mind that. Other, this person who wrote in that lives in the PG&E area, which is the northern half of the state, really. Uh, uh, well, look, I mean, here's the problem. Uh, even ro- all solar power, but especially rooftop solar power, only works in the daytime when the sun is out. And, uh, you know, solar power production peaks in the middle of the day when, oddly enough, electric power demand in the state is at its lowest point. Uh, you know, it, electric power demand in California, like most places, actually surges in the late afternoon and evening when, guess what, the sun goes down. So, you, you, you know, in order to supply the, the power that the state actually needs, and this is true just about anywhere, but especially California, you need to have conventional electricity plants running all day long because you can't just turn them on and off like a light switch, ironically enough. Uh, and yeah. so the rooftop power is, in a certain ways, irrelevant. I mean, what is important is what kind of power supplies do you have during the peak demand hours uh, when people come home from work, they turn on their TVs, they turn on their electric ovens, uh, and so forth, uh, and that's when solar power doesn't work at all. You can put solar panels on every single house in California, and it won't meet the electricity demands of the state. And so you're a little bit of a comparison of apples to oranges there. The nuclear power plants, the gas power plants, they're still running when you need them, and the solar power plants aren't. I'll just say one last thing. Whenever I hear these people boast about the rooftop solar power, I always like to ask them, so have you disconnected from the grid and supply all yeah. your own electricity? The answer is always no. They want the grid to supply them when when their rooftop solar power isn't, and so they want a free ride. Yeah, it it is interesting that they don't see that that's that's an issue, that they're connected to the grid, that they're still using that power. And as she said, she she does use it a portion of the year, despite the fact that she has solar panels on her roof. She still does have to buy power. Yeah, I mean, the only reason she's uh, selling power back to the uh, grid in the middle of the day is because there's so little demand for it. 
Uh, and, you know, by the way, that, this person's probably off at work or not using, uh, you know, her appliances and so forth. And so it's got, you know, I had solar power on a house once here in California, and it was kind of cool to watch my meter run backwards. <laughs> but that yeah. only works when your air conditioning's not running and your refrigerator's not cycling and so forth. Uh, and so there's a certain amount of hypocrisy combined with ignorance uh, in the way this is discussed. Well, you know, going back to what the real topic uh, that I address in my column is, is the, is the closing of the new, uh, Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. And you've written on that, and the piece of yours that I, especially for my listeners, I want to draw their attention to, it says, great news for fracking, California's last nuke to close. And I didn't have a lot of opportunity to address that. I put one little tiny half line, half sentence in my column about that this was great news for fracking. But um, would you address that? Well, yeah, I mean, I was being you know, ironic and sarcastic with that headline. Sure. Uh, because the point is, is that um, although all the PR from, from PG&E is that, oh, we're going to build more renewables, more solar and wind power, in fact, the gap is going to be made up with the natural gas, whether it's natural gas plants that run more in California or whether we buy it from natural gas plants out of state. Uh, that's what's going to be the um, uh, replacement. In fact, you know, even the, the lady who wrote into you said, oh, gosh, it was only you know, 9% of our electricity. Well, that's a lot from one plant. I mean, you realize that one power plant, just one, supplies more electricity than all the solar power in California combined, and that would include probably a rooftop for that matter. And it also gives it to you when you need it. And this is the last of California's nuclear power plants. You know, 25 years ago, California had three. And we closed, um, oh, I forget the one up San by San And then San Onofre here closed a couple of years ago. It had some maintenance problems and facing expensive repair because it's old. But, you know, uh, Diablo Canyon just opened in the 1980s. It's, um, you know, just a 30-some-year-old plant. And, and, you know, it could go on for a long time with no problem. Uh, but you know, there's the determination of environmentalists to close it down because they hate nuclear power. Most of them do. Right? There's a footnote yeah. to that that's interesting. Um, and so this is just totally mindless. Oh, and well, then, go ahead by and the give way, us that. This, that greenhouse gas emissions are going to go up for people who care about that sort of thing. Yeah, which, which I gather you don't with your tone and I don't. But for those who do, you're right, that, that going to natural gas. Now, the environmentalists, are really pushing from what the research I did, but you're there in California, so you probably know better than I do. But the environmentalists are really pushing to have um, this nuclear power replaced with all renewables, all wind and solar. Yes, although with a really big asterisk there. Um, what they're actually proposing, if you look at the numbers closely, is to replace some of the power capacity with wind and solar. Uh, mostly what they really want is for us to use less electricity. What they're saying is yes. we're going to meet the, we're going to meet the uh, loss of Diablo Canyon with demand-side management, conservation, and efficiency. A little translates to everybody use less electricity. You know, it's interesting. Quick note on that is I did it my guest last week, I believe it was. Yeah, it was last week. Uh, my guest was the president of the Air Conditioning, Heating, and Refrigeration Institute. And he talked out, he brought out something that was very interesting. He talked about how these regulations demanding higher efficiency air conditioning, uh, that means they use less electricity but still cool, how expensive they are, and that how these regulations have taken off the market lower-priced air conditioners, which would be suitable in many, many cases, but that do not meet the efficiency standards. And he talked about how, as a result of that, 
people are fixing old air conditioners and keeping their old air conditioners because they, the new ones are so expensive as a result of these regulations. And therefore, as a result, they're using more electricity and probably using equipment that isn't as safe as if they could afford to buy a new one. Yeah, well, you know, it's one thing to say we ought to have light bulbs that are more efficient um, and because we use our light bulbs a lot. But, you know, in most parts of the country, and certainly in California, you only use your air conditioner for parts of the year and parts of the day. And so trying to wring out uh, super high efficiency from air conditioning, which is something, as I say, you only use intermittently, uh, is really quite foolish for the very reason you point out. By the way, this isn't new. We saw this with automobiles, and, and you know, when we made automobiles more expensive through regulation, people kept their cars longer. Uh, and, you know, eventually you have to replace equipment and you'll get some efficiency gains, but you're not going to get them, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the time frame contemplated by closing down Diablo Canyon. And you're also not going to get them, uh, you know, in ways that fit with all your emissions reduction goals and so forth. Yeah, do you think there's any chance of having the Diablo Canyon decision reversed, or is this a done deal? Are we so anti-nuclear in this country at this point that that's a done deal? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, one of the most interesting things going on right now is that there's a, uh, a growing number of environmentalists, believe it or not, who have changed their mind on nuclear power. I've gotten to know some of them, and they're, they're mostly lean to the left, but... You know, they're actually serious about climate change and serious about uh, low emissions, and they say, wait a minute, nuclear power is what you have to have. Well, you know, they've, uh, it's, I, I kind of like the irony of this. Is some environmentalists finally come around just at the time when the roof is falling in on nuclear power, in California at least. Well, you know, being lefties, this is great. They did what they always do. They held a protest last week in Sacramento on Friday at the offices of the Natural Resources Defense Council. And so there's a whole bunch of left-wing guys protesting in front of the office of another bunch of left-wing people. I kind of like seeing <laughs> that go on. Um, but, you know, I talked to them, and, you know, they point out that, um, uh, you know, it's, it's possible that the decision could be reversed and that maybe what's going on here is PG&E, looking at all the difficulties and all the planned lawsuits and all the state agencies on them, said, fine, we'll just turn this thing off and see how you like it. I mean, they didn't say it that way, of course. Well, that, you know, that's kind of what I hope. That's kind of what yeah. I hope for California. I mean, I'm from California. I lived there for 20 years. Went to high school and college in California, Southern California, and uh, I, I, I just, I feel like this. They're coming around the uh, nuclear a little bit, maybe, yeah. because they realize that if they do everything they say, the mud is going to be on their face as these blackouts become more frequent. They, they're realizing, oh, my gosh, we can't kill fossil fuels because wind and solar can't carry the load. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, think, I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah, so we'll see about this. I, you know, I think, uh, I mean, PG&E, right now they're saying they're going to close the plant in, I think, um, eight years from now. Uh, but they were up against a, a closer deadline. Apparently they had to have permission renewed for their waste or their water discharged into the ocean, which has not been harmful. Uh, and that was coming up in, I think, uh, two years. Um, and so now apparently the state is saying, well, okay, maybe we'll let you continue with that or we'll just renew your permit automatically. And so I don't know. There's a lot of wheels within wheels going on with this whole mess. Fascinating discussion. We've got about 40 seconds left. Steve, uh, and I didn't mention, Steve Hayward is the author of the popular Powerline blog. So anyone that's listening that wants to check him out, you can do a search on his name and Powerline blog, and you will find his prolific writing on energy topics. Well, thanks very much. It's fun writing there. I get a lot of feedback from that.
Yeah, you, it's, I, I, I've been very impressed with it. I'm impressed that you're with us because your work is so, so revered. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, we'll obviously have to have you back because you and I have so much to talk about. I can't believe how quickly the time has flown by discussing this. One final question. It's got to be like almost a yes or no answer. Do you believe that California will be facing uh, more blackouts? Uh, yes, I do. At some point, absolutely. I lived through the last one. It's 15 years ago. Yeah. Steve Hayward, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Thanks to all of you for listening in, and please tune in again next week for another edition of America's Voice for Energy. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.